RNZ National, Colin Peacock joins us in Wellington for Midweek Media Watch. Kia ora, Colin. Kia ora, Karen. A hot topic for the political reporters this week. It was the, I don't know if it's vexing or not, it is to some, the question as to whether the government will increase tax for the very rich. Yes, and just to backtrack a little bit, all this came up after uh, the Revenue Minister David Parker in the weekend made claims that the government doesn't really know how much money the super rich actually have or are earning. He made a, a speech that cited Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk and the, uh, I think French economist Thomas Piketty and uh, he said he wants to ensure that in their revenues taxing these super rich people here uh, appropriately and that, yes, immediately twitched the antenna of political reporters. Are we being softened up for a wealth tax or something like that? So when the PM did her regular Monday morning round of media interviews, that question was put to her because, of course, she said a couple of years back there would be no capital gains tax or wealth tax while she was the Prime Minister. First, she confirmed what David Parker actually already said, that Labour wasn't planning on introducing any more taxes in this term of Parliament, but she was then asked if she stood by ruling out capital gains tax not just in this term, but while she was leader of, of the Labour Party, which you know she'd previously said, and she said she'd stick to it. But then, asked if she'd roll, rule out any kind of wealth tax, uh, she kind of fudged it a little, saying, look, beyond the next election, I'm not going to say, because we haven't formulated any tax policy for that. So that then gave political reporters room to uh, speculate about that. And, of course, opposition parties predictably, you know, fired out statements saying you can't trust Labour on tax. And that all generated more news stories. And that was uh, what got the news going on Monday and beyond. But a politician saying we can't rule it in, but we can't rule it out, that's par for the political course, isn't it? Yeah, and then opposition parties seizing on it saying you can't trust them, that's all yeah, politics by numbers, isn't it? But interestingly, um, one political reporter, uh, Stuff's senior political reporter, Henry Cook, poured cold water on all of this. He wrote a column with the title, uh, Politics Returns to the Dumbest Form of Debate, which is what he called the, the rule rule out game. So politicians and prime ministers being asked, will you rule this in? Will you rule it out? He said it's time to stop trying to force politicians to rule things in or out or, you know, taking it a step further, pledge to even resign if they should ever break their promises. And who was the we that Henry Cook referred to? Was he referring to journalists like himself? Yeah, well, that's what I thought when I first looked at it. Oh, it's unusual for a journalist to say we need to change the way we journalists behave. But he's kind of shifting some of the blame onto politicians as well who make the capital out of these sorts of things. Um, so he says, this, these are his words, it's reasonable to ask politicians to rule out enacting certain policies in the next term of power uh, or during an election campaign because voters deserve some certainty. But he says it's getting absurd when it's taken to the level of leaders ruling out ever doing anything if they're in charge. And he says this asks political leaders to handcuff themselves not just to, uh, or not just from enacting a policy over the next three years, but from deciding that they like it or campaigning on it at an election uh, and then getting a mandate to actually do it. So I reckon that's, that's a good point because I think clearly it does incentivise politicians never to go near these sort of so-called third rail issues, even if um, you know, they're, they're in the public interest. So what's the payoff then, Colin, for journalists to play the rule-it-out game? Is it just for the copy? Yeah, they get a quick story, don't they, in the short term, but then they've got another one in the future, the prospect of one, if the promise is, is broken or fudged or not adhered to in the future. So I think, I think it's also a way of... Reporters and presenters demonstrating that they've got the power. This is, you know, they, they want to show the public they're delivering clarity for them by forcing politicians to say the sort of things they don't want to do. But 
Henry Cook, you know, did point out just in one line, deep in his column, that there's a historical reason for this. In the 80s and 90s, there were two governments, you know, successive red and blue flavoured governments, who did some pretty radical things that voters felt they hadn't been warned of. They hadn't been up for debate during campaigns, things like, you know, tax on superannuation income and so on. Uh, So there is a bit of that. But I think Henry's got it right in his column where he says the tactic's not really in the public interest. He says if Labour goes to the election in 2023 with some kind of wealth tax, it could be debated on its merits, demerits. Voters have lots of time to do it instead of just preemptively wiping it off the menu, which I think this rule-in and rule-out tactic. And when you consider what we've had in the last three years, all the unforeseen circumstances, I think you know that makes it doubly absurd that you're asking politicians to rule things in or out in the, you know, what we've had in 2020, 2021, and now 2022. I can't really see journalists or certain journalists taking that to heart because it's part of the armoury. You know, they're not going to rule out the rule it out game, are they? Yeah, the, the politicians should turn it around on them eh, and challenge them to rule rule out ever asking them to rule stuff out. But uh, no, I don't. I don't <laughs> think they'll do that. Um, but uh, you know, I think it's really good to have a political reporter like Henry Cook. Um, critique this. He says, you know, there are reasonable cases to be made for these big issues like raising the super age, changing the tax system, which two uh, prime ministers and like John Key and Jacinda Ardern have felt they needed to put a marker down they personally would never uh, contemplate. He said, these are debates Kiwis deserve to see made through our politics. Instead, we seem doomed to rule them out. And I guess he means if they keep demanding that politicians do indeed, you know, rule them out. And maybe it's not a coincidence, actually. Some people who read the column said, Henry Cook's leaving soon. I think that's his plan, is that soon he's off to the UK to uh, have a crack at journalism there and that maybe he wouldn't be saying these sorts of things. But I don't know. I think um, I think privately a few other journalists would, would agree with what he said. Mm, I think a lot of people would agree with what he said, actually. Uh, on the same topic of tax and wealth, uh, a piece of interesting data journalism fleshed out the issue in, in a more informative way. Yeah, this is Kate Newton, um, formerly of RNZ. Now she's at Stuff. And she's one who's turned her hand, become a data journalism specialist. And so that's, you know, creating visualisations of stories and the sort of things journalists aren't all that good at. You know, a lot of us are sort of, you know, arts graduates, if that, and not good at maths, terrified of spreadsheets and so on. Some Come journalists... on, you're supposed to be a journalist graduate. I know, I know. Well, I'm owning up. I'm, I guess I'm describing myself there. You, you, wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to pin your life or your savings on a spreadsheet that I created uh, so I've, I've, I have tried but I think there are a lot who find it difficult like me but this is the thing that the thing that's a, a shame about the story I guess first I should say what the story is it was called uh, um, a story she wrote that had this heading on it you might not have heard of dynastic wealth but it's hurting a lot of younger Kiwis and she went through Treasury's inaugural uh, well-being report and Concluded the data points to, you know, an increasing class divide where so-called dynastic or intergenerational wealth is determining younger New Zealanders' future prospects. And she identified a wealth gap between 35-year-olds and 65-year-olds has more than doubled in the last two decades. Uh, Now, there's a lot of journalism that kind of reinforces that, but to have it with the charts, with the facts and figures there is you know, really valuable for someone like me that, uh, as you say, would, would possibly identify the trend but struggle to, to prove it. And I think that the sad thing about this is that we've been talking about the value of data journalism in this growth area for a number of years now, but there are very few actually doing it. And a couple of stalwarts of it at the Herald, Keith Thing, Chris Knox, they're leaving. And Keith Thing, via Twitter with some of his followers, um, 
kind of announced this, so that he's, he's actually going to a, a new job crunching numbers for the housing ministry. So out of journalism into public service, we said just simply this realm of data journalism is not being supported. It's a real shame because it is a growth area around the world. And, you know, maybe... Now that we have uh, government support for public interest journalism, the Public Interest Journalism Fund and other things, maybe this is an area that really ought to be targeted and supported uh, so that we can have people paid properly to do it and they don't get siphoned off to work for government or, or company where those, those skills are highly valued. Mm, so it's a specialist area within journalism. You have to be good with numbers. Yeah, certainly, and knowing how to present them and how to visualise them is the main thing. I mean, there are some absolutely stunning examples um, being produced uh, in overseas media, some here, but, yeah, the shame of it is that, as Keith's saying, it just isn't supported, and some of the best people at it have have left, and he's one of them who, who now is, uh, you know, going out of journalism and into another area. I mean, there'll still be public value in, in what he's doing. It's in the public service, for sure, but uh, it's just a shame because and it seems that even after a few years, several years now of people demonstrating the worth of it, uh, that it just hasn't quite taken off. It seems to be something that the media find difficult to support or find money for. Uh, you mentioned the government funding of journalism and a new poll out says that many people don't agree with that or approve would be the better word. <laughs> yes, this is a, a poll by the Taxpayers Union or commissioned by them uh, to gauge public attitudes to increased public funding of private media. And so a thousand people were surveyed by Courier Research and that's the polling firm of David Farrow who's a founder member of the New Zealand Taxpayers Union. So in a sense this is a political exercise because... They do not support uh, the increases in government funding uh, or pro- uh, public funding, rather, for private media that have happened under this government. And um, they asked the question of a thousand people, do you think government funding of private media companies undermines the independence of media holding the government to account? So out of those thousand, six out of every ten roughly said yes, two out of ten said no, and the other two out of ten said they didn't know. And they also asked about people's um, party allegiances and found that roughly 70% of people who say they supported ACT or National voted for them. Uh, They agreed that it was not a good thing. And slightly less for Labour and the Greens, but still substantial 43% of Labour supporters who answered the poll and 46% of Greens felt uh, that the uh, increased public funding of the media did compromise them in holding the government to account. Well, there is an argument that, you know, follow the money, uh, but there's also perhaps a stronger argument that journal- journalists are apolitical. Yeah, and the media companies have made this point strongly. Um, the New Zealand Herald stuff, say two publishers, have put out editorials, made their editors available to answer questions and said, look, there's no these are the, the sums we're getting uh, in both uh, employing to, to pay people's wages and for specific journalism projects, these are all contestable. They're relatively marginal to our bottom line. So, you know, it simply wouldn't be worth our while to actually do anything that would compromise us or, or to give ground in any way. So, so in a sense, this poll doesn't tell us a great deal. We know that along roughly political lines, um, there was division on this and some people didn't think it was a good idea. Nationals broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee has raised the, this issue a lot and asked direct questions of uh, the Minister of Broadcasting and broadcasting executives at their annual reviews. You know, would you go soft on the government because you feared compromising the source of income? And they've all said no. So what the Taxpayers Union is saying in their release saying mainstream media outlets can no longer deny because of this poll that funding has undermined the public perception of independence. But you know we know that because we've heard people talk um, 
Well, I've heard a lot on talkback radio and so on, people talking about the team of $55 million. Um, that's the sum in the public interest journalism fund uh, that was set up a couple of years back uh, to to um, run through both private and public media to support journalism. So there is certainly a perception out there that there's money's out there, that the media have their hands out, the government is providing it, and that this could compromise them. But the thing is, public money has been going to public and private media for a long time to public broadcasters like RNZ, of course, but also in contestable funds to all media once they started operating in the same sort of digital content and overlapping, uh, you know, New Zealand on air contestable funds were opened up more and more. And the public interest journalism fund has been thrown open, you know, to, to all media, big, small, public, private. So there is more public money, sure, uh, and there may be increasing dependence upon it because of the kind of economic weakness of some of our media these days. But I think in the end, this poll doesn't tell us a whole lot other than there is a public wariness about it, which is helpful to know. But, you know, we see this in all sorts of surveys where people are wary of politicians, of certain professions. And when asked a direct question, do you think there could be something wrong with this? Of course, they'll they'll say yes. So I, I don't think it takes us terribly further forward, but certainly... The level of public funding for the media and where it goes is a legitimate area of inquiry and for polls. And uh, and this one can add to other surveys that have been done on the level of public trust in media. And we do need to know if uh, people in sizable numbers are forming these perceptions because it's something the media at, le- at the least needs to counteract and the government needs to be aware of. Mm, about, about the same level as a used car salesman? Yeah, that sort of thing. I mean, <clears throat> this is the thing, you know, if, if, if you're asked a question uh, about that, I mean, there was a survey done about Parliament, which has been raised um, today uh, because of, you know, Trevor Mallard and the trespass notices and the controversy about that, about people when asked, you know, do you trust Parliament? Do you think it serves you well? And, and you know, people feel a bit jaundiced about politics. They'll say no, because they're confusing politics with Parliament, which are different things. So often, you know, I, I don't, you, you kind of have to know what's in people's minds and how much they know about the background to the question before they answer a kind of yes-no question like that and before you you take the results too literally. And now that public interest journalism fund of $55 million, that now is the source of the funds for things that have been funded for years like TVNZ's Q&A show on a Sunday morning, the News Hub Nation show on TV3, the local democracy reporting service that employs local reporters and mostly newspaper offices around the country to ensure that local government is covered. These are things that even Melissa Lee, the national spokesperson for broadcasting, has praised. And no one seems to have a problem with that. That's all folded into this new fund now. So unless people are aware of all the complexities, I don't think them just saying, "Mm," if asked, does more money from government to private media compromise media holding to account? Mm, Possibly does. You know, I think I think it doesn't take us all that far. And tonight, another high-profile exit stage right from Parliament this evening and an opportunity for any political parting shots? <laughs> yeah, Simon Bridges, he talked it down a bit. He's saying Lewis Walls one generated uh, quite a bit of heat a couple of weeks back. He said his wouldn't be like that, and it wasn't. But I was interested to see if he was going to comment on the role of the media because I think he had a pretty hard time from the media. And actually, at the start, uh, he did. He accused the press gallery of uh, a bit of groupthink. But I do despair how narrow the viewpoints are here as opposed to in the UK, the United States and even Australia. More viewpoints are tolerated, actually encouraged in their deeper media environments. Our press gallery can hunt as a pack. Okay, then there's Barry. But basically (laughs) as a pack. And I say to you, 
if every one of you has the same basic position on a complex matter, you are probably all engaged in group thinking, quite probably wrong. Mm, journalists won't like being told that. It's not a new thing to say that the gallery hunts in a pack and that some of the reporting follows similar lines. They all seem to draw similar conclusions. But the thing is, when you talk about the UK and the and the US and Australia, and so I, the, the, I mean, partly that's because they have more partisan presses. You know, papers identifiably left wing or pro government, pro opposition, whatever. And I think most people value the fact that we don't. Often they talk so much about political strategy rather than the issues and so on. That is maybe a form of groupthink. But uh, Bridges sort of went on to say that he thinks they focused far too much on the national opposition in recent years, whilst acknowledging they have been newsworthy in the way that uh, they've gone about their business. He couldn't shy away from that, and particularly in his own time in charge. But he said that media and politicians uh, alike, too urban, too Wellington-focused, need to be... um, getting out to the regions and have what he described as a broader church of opinions. And uh, he said the commentariat would often look at his interviews and describe them as train wrecks when he confronted the likes of John Campbell or Susie Ferguson, two that he name-checked, and, and, and uh, say that his career was dead. And, uh, but he said, look, you know, I'm, I'm leaving on my own terms and, and not, not yours. Is that last one a fair point, though? He was called a dead man walking quite a lot. Yeah, and I honestly, I don't think when he was leader that he was terribly fairly treated by the media. And I'd single out sort of News Hub in that. They amplified several leaks about him where I would argue the real story was never in the actual revelation of what was being leaked, but in the fact that someone was trying to undermine him. And that that would have been the thing of real public interest. Uh, I'm sure that would be on his mind as he, he leaves politics. But doesn't every leader of the opposition face this sort of thing, especially against popular PMs like uh, John Key and Jacinda Ardern in recent years? Yeah, well, but that's yeah, that's part of it, because when they go on about the preferred Prime Minister ratings and all of that, News Hub in particular made an awful lot of his, um, they called him historically unpopular, uh, did sort of word clouds where people were invited to describe him and, you know, in quite sometimes quite abusive terms. And, you know, I think they really went to town on the fact that he struggled to build, you know, personal um, popularity, but at a time when it was really, really uh, difficult to do. The Today FM station that we mentioned earlier, former TV3 News Hub reporter Lloyd Burr, who, who now is a presenter on Today FM, he's got a podcast series coming out tomorrow, uh, which is all about Labour's wilderness years in opposition, the sort of decade up to 2017 when they got back in. And in that, he does talk to political reporters as well as the politicians in that. And it will be interesting if they're prepared to be frank about, you know, the the difficulties opposition leaders face, because I think in the current sort of media and political environment, it is difficult. And we've seen both those major parties in opposition, Labour and National, successively struggle you know, to get a leader who's got support um, going into elections. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And let's end with uh, what was a run-of-the-mill afternoon radio sports bulletin that caught your ear yesterday. Why? Yeah, this was the 4pm bulletin on Today FM, the station we mentioned earlier. Um, Just first of all, because it led with two stories that were all about uh, comment made by local sportswomen, uh, which in itself is um, uh, out of the ordinary. But um, the first up, uh, first one was um, the reaction to a last-minute loss to Australia. This was the Black Ferns um, Sevens team playing in Canada, uh, reported this way. Despite the heartbreaking nature of the result, speedster Portia Woodman's not too gutted after their first tournament back on the circuit. I like losing in some ways. Like, well, don't get me wrong, I hate, I hate losing with a passion, but when we lose, we learn so much more from it. 
I can't imagine a male or black saying defeat to Australia would be a good thing in character building, can you? No, no, I can't. So that really stood out for me. But I also like uh, the the concept there of being not too gutted, you know. So, yeah, we lost to Australia last second, but, you know, just, just a wee bit disemboweled, but it guts hanging out there, but not, not completely gutted. <laughs> but uh, after that, the straight after, uh, the next up in that sports bulletin, um, this is one that I'm sure you have heard about. It's gone kind of a little bit viral. This was a comment by uh, golfer Lydia Ko, uh, yeah, which turned out to be um, quite a talking point. A Kiwi golfer finished tied for third but needed physio treatment on her back during the final round due to her period. It's that time of the month I know the ladies watching <laughs> are probably like, yeah, I got you. <laughs> uh, thanks. <laughs> I know you're lost for words, Jerry. <laughs> I really love that. and It's made such a great impact, co-mentioning her period as a factor in her match. Yeah, but the thing is, I mean, she just answered the question. He said, do you have an injury? And she's gone, oh, nah, just, you know, period pain. So the, the, you know, the physio came and sorted me out. So, I mean, she has been applauded for airing, you know, an aspect of women's sport that almost never gets mentioned. Um, but it's a little surprising. I went back to have a look. I think surely this must have come up fairly frequently. And, but it actually doesn't. And I think the last example like this was a UK tennis player, Heather Watson. Uh, she was expected to win her first game, first round game at the Australian Open in 2015. It's seven years ago, and she kind of cited um, girls' problems as a, a reason for her disappointing performance. And people seized on that, saying, oh, at last, someone's actually mentioned this. I, I guess maybe sportswomen don't want to be seen as trying to find excuses or leave themselves open to that criticism, but kind of incredible um, that something that must be part of you know professional athletics and I'm sure coaches and training schedules take into account if it never gets mentioned uh, you know in passing and live sports broadcasting I find that quite remarkable mm, women have been expected to soldier on in all circumstances yeah I guess that's it it's always been like the old thing about you know if men had periods you know everything would be different um so yeah you can imagine can't you all the Queensland Cowboys in the NRL or something, you know, but but under the weather today, Brad, and performed, you know, yeah, sorry, mate, a bit of back pain there, but oh, you know, struggled to let my team down, let my sponsors down, sorry about that, but you know, it's biology. What can I do? You know, uh, yeah, we don't we don't hear that, do we? <laughs> I think you might be in trouble for saying that, Colin. <laughs> well, just sort of slipped into a parallel universe. Um, <laughs> you did. <laughs> you did. But I, That's I, I, right. I guess the point is that Lydia Coe just simply answered the question about do you have an injury and said no and said why. And this should be a novelty that, that she said it. Yeah, do they? I don't know. Maybe, As you but the, did. but the, well, the discomfort. Well, I wasn't poking fun. I was saying it would be different if because you know sports broadcasting is a mostly male thing. So I mean, the the fact of uh, the, the the person who had the fun poked at them, I guess, was uh, the guy there, Jerry Folks, who just didn't know to respond. He wasn't expecting it, uh, and 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 was slightly lost for words. Which then you know even his own colleagues back in the studio. Uh, you know, commented on that. I'm sure he found that awkward. But I guess that's a function of the fact that, you know, for whatever reason, it just never comes up, just as is never discussed. 